podcast, The Icing on the Cake, with Claire Bretherton, Ian Harrison, Ian Morrison, Mark Perver, Christina Smith, and Hannah Stacey. The Jugcast, December 2014 edition. Hello and welcome to The Jugcast. I'm Christina and joining me in the studio today are Mark and Hannah. Hello guys. Hello. Can I just mention before we go on as well, Christina's now a doctor. I am, yes. And, and is there any correlation between this and the fact that you've come back to do the job cast for the first time in quite a long time? Maybe, yes, a little bit. <laughs> it has been about a year, I think. Well done, Dr. Smith. Thank you. In the show this time, Mark interviews Professor Eliza Resconi. We find out what is in the December night sky and we bring you some odds and ends from the world of astronomy. But first, before all of that, here's Ian with this month's news. In the news this month, a comet landing, dodging black holes and dust-free comets. ESA's Rosetta mission, launched in 2004 and recently rendezvoused in August this year with comet 67P Cherimov-Gerasimenko, carried the 100kg robotic lander Philae on November the 12th. Philae became the first man-made object to perform a soft touchdown on the surface of a comet nucleus. It was not a smooth landing, however. It had been planned that the lander would use a cold gas thruster to push itself into the surface upon landing, but this system could not be initiated prior to separation from the parent satellite Rosetta. Philae was also equipped with harpoons and screws which would assist in securing it to the comet's surface after touchdown. Unfortunately, the harpoons did not fire, and the lander bounced twice before finally coming to rest on the surface of the comet, around a kilometre from its initial intended landing site. After coming to rest, Philae sent out a message to Earth via Rosetta, which was picked up after the 28 light-minute delay to the delight of mission scientists. The lander is equipped with a total of 10 instruments, which were designed to carry out experiments ranging from photographing the surface to analysing the composition and structure of the comet in a variety of ways. Although the lander is equipped with a number of solar panels which the scientists and engineers hoped would power it, a plan existed for the onboard experiments in the worst-case scenario in which they would only be able to operate for as long as the onboard battery in Philae allowed, around 60 hours. Unfortunately, the lander came to rest in the shallow of a cliff, denying the solar panels sufficient sunlight to keep the lander charged. As the battery reserves ran low, Philae was instructed to rotate itself and change its angle by 35 degrees in the hope that more light would be cast onto the solar panels as the comet itself moved closer to the sun. After 64 hours of data collection, the lander was put into hibernation with the possibility of rewakening it if the batteries are successfully recharged later in the comet's orbit. In those 64 hours, every single one of Philae's instruments was successfully used and data collected, including a drill that was instructed to dig 25 centimetres into the comet, take samples and analyse them. This data was transmitted back to Earth via Rosetta satellite before the lander was put into hibernation. The data has already changed our understanding of comets. In addition, the first panoramic pictures showed a rough, debris-strewn landscape, the catchily named Multipurpose Sensors for Surface and Subsurface Science, found a hard layer of ice about 10 to 20 centimetres underneath the initial dusty top layer, and the cometary sampling and composition experiment has detected organic molecules on the comet's surface. It has also been speculated that some of the other experiments which form part of the mission, such as the Rosetta Magnetometer and Plasma Monitor, which will examine the magnetic field of the comet, may have benefited from the Philae lander's bumpy touchdown. The true impact of the data collected on this mission on the field will only truly be apparent once the experiments have been fully analysed. 
In other news, a team of astronomers led by Professor Andrea Gaze of the University of California, Los Angeles, used the WM Keck Observatory in Hawaii to observe a dusty object on a close approach to the supermassive black hole at the centre of our Milky Way. The object, designated G2, was first identified in 2011 and was found to be on a path which would take it on a close encounter with the black hole, a distance of only 3,000 times the event horizon, the boundary at which not even light can escape from the black hole's gravitational pull. Initially, the object was thought to be a dusty gas cloud with a mass around three times that of the Earth. If that were the case, the G2 object would have been torn apart as it approached the supermassive black hole. However, as Gaze and her team showed, G2 not only survived, but was unaffected by the black hole and has subsequently continued on its orbit. In light of this, Gaze and her team believe that, instead of being a dusty gas cloud, G2 is actually a binary star system that merged to form a single star under the influence of the black hole. This star would be surrounded by a large amount of gas and dust, as G2 is observed to be. The team also speculates that G2 is not the only object like this, and many more may be found in the vicinity of supermassive black holes. And finally, the discovery of two objects in comet-like orbits around the Sun was announced this month by a team at the annual meeting of the Division of Planetary Sciences of the American Astronomical Society in Tucson, Arizona. What makes these objects unusual is their distinct lack of dust. When a comet's orbit takes it close enough to the Sun, the surface begins to evaporate and a bright tail of gas and dust is formed. However, observations of these two objects only hinted at the existence of very faint tails, such inactive objects from the solar system's Oort cloud had been hypothesised but never seen before. The first of these objects to be discovered was designated C-2013P2 Panstars, as follow-up observations of its surface have been carried out with the Gemini North Telescope. A second dust-free comet-like object, C-2014S3 Panstars, was discovered and follow-up observations to examine its colour were made using the Canada-France-Hawaii Telescope on Mauna Kea, Hawaii. The surface of the first object was shown to be very red and more like that of an ultra-red Kuiper belt object than the surface of comets or asteroids. The second has a more blue colour, making it much more like inner solar system asteroids than outer solar system objects. Further work is ongoing to better understand these objects, their origin and how they fit into theories of the formation of the solar system. Thanks for that, Ian. Now we have Mark talking to Professor Eliza Resconi about detecting neutrinos with IceCube. I'm interviewing Professor Eliza Resconi from the Technische Universität München, which is the Technical University of Munich, is that right? Correct, yes. Okay. Welcome to the Jogcast. Thank you for flying in to do the, the colloquium and the interview. Thank you for inviting me. This is quite exciting because it's quite unusual on the Jogcast that we have any interview that's not about electromagnetic waves. <laughs> So, at my calculations, it's been about three and a half years since we had the last one. So, can you tell us what it is that you study or how you are studying the universe? Okay, well, this is a complicated question. I try to answer in short. I'll be trying really to complement uh, what with uh, photons you can do. So, neutrinos uh, travel without basically interacting from very far away or from the core of stars and black holes. So when photons are absorbed, uh, neutrinos will not be absorbed. And so that's in very short uh, the complementarity respect photons. So these particles, uh, neutrinos, they have mass, which makes them a little bit different to, to mm -hmm. light, also, I guess. Correct, yes. And, uh, well, perhaps you could start off by telling us 
how you detect them. You mentioned they don't really interact very、mm-hmm. much. How do you how do you capture them? Yeah, well, in principle, they interact very very rarely. So once、uh, you have a huge mass instrumented.、Uh, Like we have, for example,、uh, in ice cube. So really, you need a huge detector. Then once in a while, you will be able to see the interaction of neutrinos. So we say they interact weakly, and this means the probability of the interaction is very, very weak or very rare. And so the problem is, of course, to realize these huge detectors, and that's the reason why we don't build a detector, but we use. Natural material, the ice or water in lakes and oceans, and in this way we try really to have huge target material. So, ice cube, as you mentioned, that is actually a cube of ice, is it? It's it's one cubic kilometer cube of ice. Yes. Wow. Since we'll assume that people maybe haven't heard about it before, where do you get this cubic kilometer of ice? <laughs> well, Antarctica is giving uh, this uh, this uh, huge amount of target material for free. So this is really the glacier, and so we use it. The cleanest part of、uh, the glacier. The glacier is three thousand meter tall, so it's a huge amount of of ice down there. And、uh, we deploy the detector below the surface,、uh, so below one point five kilometer, and we instrument basically the last kilometer of. Ice, where the optical properties are particularly clean and nice, so it's a very quiet environment and、uh, ideally set for this very rare type of events that we search. I was going to ask actually why the ice had to be there at the well at the South Pole, and you're saying it's sort of pure. So, what would happen if you just used, say, some ice out of the freezer? You know, so、uh, a very big cube of, of ice. How how would that sort of get in the way of what you're looking for? Yeah, that actually the ice from our freezer is very different. It's very milky, so people have always in mind this very milky type of ice, and they ask. How can you resist something through? Okay, so the ice is milking the ice、uh, cube in the in the freezer because air is trapped in the ice.、Right. Actually, air is dissolved in water. So once we freeze water, then basically air remains trapped. And so what we see this milkyish white、uh, color of ice is typically light scattered,、mm-hmm. and through this effect, then、uh, we cannot see through. But once ice is actually at very high pressure, then Air cannot be trapped anymore, and so the ice at the South Pole—I mean, the deep ice—is extremely clean and extremely transparent. One can think, for example, about a piece of glass, a one cubic kilometer piece of glass that you have down there for free. So it's very spectacular. I'm just trying to imagine. There is this big piece of ice. Let's say some neutrinos are coming in and interacting with it. How do you detect them? How do you get the detectors in there without spoiling the ice? Well, we don't spoil the ice at all. You know, neutrinos produce energy. In the atmosphere, in the earth,、uh, so that is something that happens constantly. So the fact that neutrinos cross the ice happens since ever. We don't produce anything artificial. I was just thinking more of the actual detecting elements. Yeah. Do they well, stick into the ice or? Yeah, these are basically quarks. So everything that、uh, composes protons and neutrons. So basically, the nuclei. Of water that is down there of the ice itself. So this is the target material. And once a neutrino at very high energy arrives and basically enters inside the molecular, inside the atom, inside the nuclei of the atom, and once in a while, as I said,、uh, produce an interaction. And from this interaction,、uh, charged particles are produced. Then what we see actually are the charged particles, not the neutrino itself. 
So the charged particles then travel through the eyes and they produce a bluish type of light. It's called Cherenkov light. And so the photosensors that we have deployed that compose ice cube see and detect this Cherenkov light. So from the reconstruction of all of that, so from the detection of the Cherenkov light, we can go back from to the to the charged particles and then we can go back to the neutrino. So it's a very right. indirect type of uh, of detection what we do. Yeah. But it works pretty well. I mean, are the light detectors embedded into the ice as well? Yeah, exactly. So the detector is composed by 5,160 light sensors. That's nothing else than this. It's a pretty, let's say, from the hardware point of view, simple. Uh, the exceptional part was how to deploy these, these sensors down there. And uh, But otherwise, yeah, one can think simply one cubic kilometer, very transparent uh, ice, instrumented with a matrix of uh, photosensors. Okay, that's great. Well, let's talk about the actual things you detected, because we, we once had an interview before about IceCube, but it was still quite early days. It was over three years ago. So what sort of neutrinos have you been detecting? Have you been able to work out where some of them are coming from? major new and fundamental achievement is that uh, we now believe that we have started to see high-energy astrophysical neutrinos. I insist on high energy because neutrinos have been seen from the sun and from one co-collapse supernova in 1987. So there have been already two point sources of neutrinos, but these are neutrinos at lower energies and these are produced in uh, nuclear reactions. So what we were looking for were neutrinos at much higher energy that are produced also through different mechanisms, through acceleration in the universe. And so nobody could actually tell us which level of flux, or which number of neutrinos you would really see. So it was a big adventure and a big bet. And so in the moment we actually switched on the full detector in 2010, I think we were the first to be surprised to indeed start to see these neutrinos. And yeah, it's a big achievement, but it's also just starting in a sense. Uh, so we have a bunch of these events today. I can tell you it's about a little bit more than 50 in wow. integrating four years. And, so you it's um, like one a month. Yeah. I mean, if we, if we optimize, you know, IceCube collects a lot of events, uh, high frequency detector in a sense, but most of them are background. So it depends a little bit how you identify neutrinos. You reduce the sample. So these 50 are, let's say, the golden events. And we have started to use them because we are pretty sure that they are astrophysical. So we have been very hard on the background ejection. So now we know also how to improve the sample. So it's not that we will be stuck on this low statistic forever, uh, but we have just learned how to handle better the detect, the, the detect itself and the background. But yeah, I think we can speak about a 50-ish events coming from the universe. And how energetic are they, these neutrinos, say, compared to the ones that are coming from flooding out of the sun all the time? Yeah, they are really much more energetic. We have uh, started to see events at the PV scale, PV is 10 to the 15 electron volt. Maybe you want as a, as a scale for astronomers, the highest energetic photon ever detected was around 10, 50 TV, so 10 to the 12 electron volt. So we definitely... Times more energy. It's about three order of magnitude more energy than the highest energetic photon. Respect the solar neutrinos, we have to scale it. So neutrinos from the sun are produced at around MeV, so 10 to the 6 electron volt so to arrive to 10 to 15 electron volt you have to scale up nine order of is correct nine order of magnitude. Yeah. yes and is so, each one event a single neutrino that interacts or do you ever get a bunch within a short time 
I mean, or would that be something that happens with a supernova or yeah, something like exactly. that? Yeah, exactly. I mean, from the sun, the neutrinos are steady. For the supernova, it's the opposite. They happen in very few seconds. So it's just a burst. For what can the astrophysical neutrinos, for the moment, they look steady as well unfortunately. And they look also diffuse. I mean, we haven't been able to identify a specific direction. And this doesn't have to be over-interpreted in a sense, because to pin down single objects, you require much more events. Mm -hmm. So let's say we are in the so-called diffuse regime, as we're supposed to start. I mean, most of the astronomy started with a large background. I think in astrophysics you call it background, the everything you cannot pinpoint down to a source. Yes. So, yeah. so these astrophysical neutrinos are now our astrophysical background, and we hope to look deeper and being able to know later to start to resolve objects. If there are objects close by, then I think we will resolve them. But that is, I think, is the major challenge now. Any idea whether they are objects within our galaxy or even extragalactic, extremely distant events? It's very hard to say. Everything is in principle is possible. So from one side, the sky, I mean, we know for sure the universe is very different in neutrinos as in photons because neutrinos are not absorbed. So indeed, we are collecting everything that has been produced somewhere. And this somewhere could be really also very far. If it is the case that we are seeing neutrinos coming really from extremely far objects, most probably these far objects haven't been seen in other wavelengths, in other photons. So that is not that nice somehow, but probably some component should come from very far, but we don't know how much uh, from these 50 events, maybe 10, 20, could, could remain diffused forever. On the other side, uh, we live in an environment where strong accelerator exists. Uh, our galactic center, for example, is quite a strong object. Then why not some of these events could be associated with the galactic center or to other objects in our galaxy, as well as extragalactic objects. So the high-energy universe is full of interesting, strong monster, <laughs> and, and uh, so there are a lot of scenarios and a lot of theories as well. So I think that is our work now yeah. to figure this out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, 50 big events is a good start. Obviously, there'll be lots of uh, more to come and lots of interpretation. Do we think there could be such a thing as a, a cosmic neutrino background in the same way as there's a cosmic microwave background originating from the early universe? And would you expect to pick that up or to be able to distinguish it from other sources? This again pushes us in another energy regime. The relic neutrinos should be also there and uh, they should be really at extremely low energy, much lower than even the sun. To detect this, there are people thinking to detect relic neutrinos at the electron volts case or even below. The flux should be very high, but the cross-section, I mean, the cross-section for neutrinos grow with energy. This means that lower you go in energy, even harder will become uh, the detection of them. So I don't really know today how we will be able to access these very low energy neutrinos. So maybe somebody else knows that, but I don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess we're looking at it from an astrophysical point of view because we're an astronomy podcast. But do you also have an interest in any neutrinos that are that are not from very distant sources, any that are, that are more local? Is that oh, a target yes. for Ice Cube 2? Yes, definitely. I mean, we really hope to identify at least some close by object. Uh, but as I said before, since neutrinos are not absorbed, our horizon, so our, in a sense, neutrino horizon is huge. Mm -hmm. 
And so, so then we, it's hard to guess. As I said, there are close by very strong objects, blazers, for example, hillax, uh, or could also happen a gamma ray burst not too far away, or things like this can trigger a detection. So we're saying close by, but you're still talking about uh, yeah. sort of, I guess, tens of millions of light years? Yes, that says oh, still, so already quite far, you're right. Are there any terrestrial sources that get in the way? I mean, this may seem a silly question, but does the Large Hadron Collider, for example, kick out <laughs> bursts of neutrinos? It's, it's a very good question indeed. And I can tell you, very high energy neutrinos, the PV, so 10 to the 15 electron volts, happens to be exactly... So if you transform the PV, we always work in the reference frame of the particle. And for example, the LHC works in the reference frame of uh, the center of mass, right? So if you transform this, it's a very simple transformation, you end up with exactly the same energy scale as uh, the center of mass at LHC. And this was one of the first thing I did, for example, and I was surprised. I was thinking, oh my goodness, uh, is it possible at all that maybe LHC is going to produce these neutrinos? And of course it's not, because, you know, you should assume that all the mass produced in an interaction in the core of LHC will go in one single particle, namely a neutrino. Mm-hmm. Moreover, this neutrino should then go in the direction of ice cube and somehow interact. So this this is really not feasible. But in a sense, so this is not the background for us. And I can tell you, I investigated that seriously <laughs> because I got sort of scared from this very strong coincidence. It's just a coincidence. This is not enough events coming from, not enough neutrinos coming from the LHC. To no, and the energy, the energy that, that actually LHC can produce. I mean, the center of mass is really the same. But you know, they produce always a huge amount of particles. So per particle, then the energy is much lower. So here we are looking really for one in one single part that carries this, all the, the energy produced in this interaction. So this can't happen, essentially. You cannot bring all the energy in one particle down there. I can tell you, no, there are no background sources on Earth, and nor actually extraterrestrial sources. And what is the background for part of the astrophysical neutrino is the atmosphere. Right. Um, yeah. And in the atmosphere, so cosmic ray interact in the atmosphere, and they produce also a lot of particles. And for other two components that are uh, important for the background, one is the muon component, which is a penetrating component, so arrive actually in the detector, even if we are below the surface, 1.5 kilometers. And then, of course, the neutrinos produced in the atmosphere, so the atmosphere neutrinos. These neutrinos are lower energy, a little bit at lower energy, and so that's the reason why we always speak about high-energy neutrinos, so where essentially atmospheric neutrinos are extremely rare, uh, and so we know the background is uh, nearly zero. It's never zero background, but somehow you are in a safe uh, region. Yeah. Well, just to give everyone an idea, because they might not uh, know that much about particle physics, I don't think I do either. Um, <laughs> we've, you mentioned the muon, so there's these three, as we know now, three species of neutrino, the electron, muon, and tau. Mm-hmm. So can you just give us an idea of what you're sensitive to? You're sensitive to, to all of those types, and also just to give us a statistical picture, how likely is it that a single neutrino passing through the ice mm-hmm actually interact? IceCube can see all three types of neutrinos, electron, mu and tau. Uh, the interactions are different, and so actually we, we cannot really identify which one is an electron neutrino, which one is a tau neutrino. Muon neutrinos are, let's say, the easier one because uh, they have a, a specific topology. I mean, they induce a muon, and as I said, the muon is actually traveling. It's a very penetrating particle, and so travel kilometers if it's uh, high energy. And so we see a long track of light 
And so this is simple somehow to disentangle from the others. The others produce, so electron neutrinos and tau neutrinos produce just a blob of particles, so more spherical-like. And so we cannot really say this is an electron neutrino or a tau neutrino, but we collect all of them to answer the first question. And the second question about the cross-section, so what is the probability to to see them? Well, cross-section is of the order of 10 to the minus 20. Then, as I said, depends on the energy. So this is really very, very small. But again, you can compensate that instrumenting a lot of matter. So you can just scale it uh, with the volume. So just being a little bit more speculative, sometimes people have talked about neutrinos as being possibly what we call dark matter although it seems as though that idea is generally disfavoured. So obviously neutrinos, they share some things in common with dark matter, which is that they don't interact very much. Mm-hmm. Um, could they be the sort of 90% of matter that seems to be unexplained in the universe? So uh, neutrinos, we know they have a mass and we know we don't know the absolute scale of the mass, but we know the mass is very, very small of the three neutrinos. And so if you use this level of masses, you don't really manage to get the dark matter out there. There could be a fourth neutrino and we call it sterile and theoretically from this particle physics point of view is a quite natural actually extension. Uh, so in this poor sterile neutrino will not be able even to interact weakly. So we basically don't do anything and there are measurements that are sort of indicating a mass of this sterile neutrino at higher scale. So if the sterile neutrino exists, this has, hasn't been proved yet. Uh, this sterile neutrino could be a good candidate for dark matter. But they just interact by gravity, would they? In- then exactly. Then else. basically, will be only uh, a particle that you can see by gravity. You, they will not do anything. Nothing electromagnetically nor weakly interacting. Do we know so, how they might be produced? Yeah, well, I mean, since the standard neutrinos uh, have a mass, we know that they should be, now I use a technical word, the right-handed partner. So in the standard model, all particles are left and right-handed. The only thing is that the weak interaction works only with left-handed particles. So all neutrinos that would be right-handed somehow will be insensitive. They cannot interact in in weak terms. And so they might exist, but we cannot see them. We cannot communicate with them in any any way using any, any force apart the gravity. And uh, the fact is that some neutrino experiments, they don't match, I mean, the, the results don't match perfectly with the, the assumption from the standard model of particle physics. So there are tensions in various experiments. And just adding uh, a fourth neutrino, sterile neutrino, then suddenly the measurements match much better. So, but these are all very weak statistically. So it's too early to say that this really exists as sterile neutrino. But nevertheless, if this sterile neutrino would exist, it will be heavier and so could be then a good candidate for dark matter. Uh, so it's a bit complicated, but, mm-hmm. but there is a possibility, not for the standard neutrinos, but maybe for the CR neutrino. Okay. Well, just almost the last thing then, uh, you are going to talk about something that, after me, I don't know anything about except that it's got a nice name <laughs> uh, called Kingu. <laughs> yes. Is this an extension to Ice Cube? It's an acronym, P-I-N-G-U. Yes, right. What will that do you? So uh, Pingu is a great project. Actually, I'm collaborating with a group here in Manchester, Pingu, and this is completely different. It's really part of physics. Uh, we use, I mean, it's under design, so it's not yet in the ice, and will be possibly uh, deployed inside IceCube. It's the same technology, essentially, as IceCube, but the spacing of the photosensor will be different, will be just smaller, and so with the spacing, we can optimize the detection at different scales. So smaller is the scale, the spacing smaller will be also the energy of the neutrinos we detect. We want to detect, in that case, neutrinos produced in the atmosphere, what is actually the background for the astrophysical neutrinos. Now we become a 
signal. Uh, with the precision measurements of atmospheric neutrinos, we try to disentangle uh, one important thing concerning the neutrino masses. Uh, this is again a little bit technical, not simple to explain to an audience that is not in particle physics active, but uh, the point is that, uh, as I said, there are three neutrinos, they have masses. Um, we know that the, the first neutrino, so now in terms of masses, you have to use, uh, you call them new one, new two, and new three, not anymore electron muon tau. Okay. Okay, and we know that the new one is a little bit uh, lighter than the new two. This has been done in an experiment using solar neutrinos. What we don't know yet is if the new three is lighter or heavier. This is called neutrino mass hierarchy, and it's not just a curiosity, right? It's not that just we want to to know that. It's really a fundamental parameter in the model. The understanding of the neutrino mass hierarchy is uh, question number one open in particle physics for the leptonic sector. And we can do this measurement in a relatively cheap way using PINGU. And so using the same technology of IceCube, using atmospheric neutrinos that are there always, so a beam that is always on, and using our Earth as a laboratory. And so we have done all the calculation, and this is really promising, and we hope to get the funds <laughs> mm -hmm. to to go back to the pole and deploy Pingu and do this very, very, the P in Pingu means precision. Okay. So precision measurement uh, of particle physics. It's very exciting. Fantastic. Yeah, I can't even imagine trying to weigh something as little as a neutrino. <laughs> so. Correct, yes. That'll be really interesting. All right, this is a very last question, and it's not really uh, to do with physics, but have you worked out at the South Pole, and, and what's well, it like out there? Yeah, I never, you know, working at the South Pole is, is like more or less, uh, I mean, with an experiment at the South Pole, it's like having your detector on a satellite, more or less. So I have been uh, never at the South Pole, personally, <laughs> as, for example, the PI of IceCube. But that is not a big limitation, so I cannot really answer you how it it is working uh, from there. But people spend the winter there, do they? Yeah. I mean, when it's it's possibly one of the only places on Earth that is really uninhabitable unless you're, as you said, as if you were on another planet or in space or yes. something. So presumably, do they have to stay inside? Do they go out in spacesuits? Or yeah, well, no, not really in spacesuits. <laughs> but uh, it's it's very remote and isolated. Uh, but uh, the, at the South Pole, uh, there is a huge station, so the infrastructure is meanwhile pretty good. There is a small community, about 50 people, that winter there. So they stay there basically one year, a little bit longer than one year. And between, uh, let's say, February and October, the station is isolated. Mm. And I think that is probably psychologically the worst part of, of being there that long. Apart, of course, the light, that you have a basically long night to, to face or lack of light. I think probably to be isolated is very hard for the community down there. And so I always enjoy when our winter over come back and they share their experience. <laughs> Most of them are very positive. A uh, few of them are quite scaring, <laughs> but nothing bad never happens. So it's sort of pretty, sort of safe place to be. You have, of course, to be a special character, I think, to be there. Some of them tell, well, that was short and they love to go back <laughs> yeah so I, I, from the stories of the others I collect usually very positive feedback and does, uh, do people sometimes have to go outside to fix it things even during the winter because it could yes. be sort of minus 70 it's about uh, minus is... 50 minus 60 okay do they Plus need breathing chill. equipment and so on to actually uh, No, not or? really. I mean, they, they have special equipment uh -huh. because it's extremely cold and they uh, use a, a mask, but this is just for for basically filtering a little bit the, the air and, uh, and it's not actually helping the, the breathing. It's, it's enough 
what is out there. But yeah, they have to be very careful. So that's, I think, the most dangerous part of, of that. But again, uh, people are trained very well before. Only very healthy people can travel there. Uh, there is a, a medical doctor at the South Pole. There's also psychologists at the South Pole. So I think they select people that in good shape. And most of the time, uh, things works pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> That's Yeah, it's remarkable that an experiment goes on there. But I guess that is that is the place on Earth to have it. I think, yeah, 20 years ago when the idea of Ice Cube was born, you know, neutrino astronomy, the first the first idea was to deploy such a detector in water in uh, close to Hawaii. And then it didn't work out pretty well because, I mean, the, the, to deploy in on a liquid surface is very difficult. And to go far offshore is also extremely logistically complicated. And so then people moved to a solid base and there was an experiment or there is an experiment in the Lake Baikal using really the winter frozen lake to deploy and then the South Pole. And of course at back then was incredible ambitious to to deploy anything down there. You know, no we we didn't know even the optical properties very well of, of the ice. And it was not clear at all that things like this would succeed. And so I think for people that actually went through the entire development is amazing that this detector works. Works fantastically actually. It's very stable. So it seems that the environment is extremely good for this type of detector. So eventually now it seems simple. <laughs> That's great. Well good luck with uh, the rest of IceCube and, and particularly with Pingu. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. Thanks for that Mark. Now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all of those other things that we can't fit in anywhere else. The odds and ends. So my contribution is the first multiply image gravitational lens supernova. And what gravitational lensing is, is the way that light is bent around massive objects. In this case, the massive object is a large galaxy cluster, which is lensing a spiral galaxy into three different images. And one of those images is then being lensed again by another galaxy. So one of the spiral arms has been lensed and you see four images of this supernova. Wow. I've never heard of anything being doubly lensed and, well, as you said, it's the first time a supernova has been caught like that, but that must be quite a, quite a distorted picture. Yeah, I've never heard of it either. Is it, are you seeing the supernova in all of the images simultaneously? Uh, just one of the images at the moment. And why does that happen? Why do you only see it in one and then the other? Is it like, is it the diff- different distance light has to travel or it, something yeah it's the it's the path difference between the um the light from the source as it's been bent around this um galaxy and um i think it offers us a, a few chances to um understand some things about the mass distributions of the galaxies and the galaxy cluster and also potentially about um the hubble expansion rate yeah i suppose supernovas are quite key to that when they talk about dark energy that was all based on measuring supernovas very far out in the universe and how bright they are. Yeah, well, this this offers a, um, an independent method of doing that. So it would be really useful if we could um, get some more samples. Brilliant. Well, I've got something that's related to supernovas, uh, gamma ray bursts. And some of these bursts of gamma rays that are seen every so often in the sky uh, last for quite a long time and are thought to possibly originate from supernovas, although I don't think from every supernova. Um, and some astronomers in Israel and Spain have been thinking about the consequences that gamma ray bursts have for life, and particularly complex life forms. So although these gamma rays wouldn't sort of immediately zap us all if the gamma ray burst was 
within a few thousand light years. Apparently it could, say, deplete the ozone layer and it could cause climate change on a massive scale and result in mass extinctions. Um, and they've actually worked out some numbers. Now, I, I don't know how, exactly how certain these are. These figures are always subject to change. But they said that they reckon on Earth, uh, in a 500 million year window, the last 500 million years, there was about a 50% chance of a gamma ray burst coming along and causing uh, an extinction. And in fact, apparently, a lot of people think that an extinction around 450 million years ago of lots of species was caused by a gamma ray burst. Although I'm, I'm guessing that's quite difficult to be certain about. Um, but the interesting thing as well is that if your galaxy, say you choose a galaxy, has fewer metals in it, that means elements heavier than hydrogen and helium, uh, there's more chance of gamma ray bursts. So these are, are bad places for life to try and evolve. Um, but our Milky Way, fortunately, is quite metallic, giving us a better chance. But even with that, they say that if we were within four kiloparsecs of the galactic centre, and actually we're about eight kiloparsecs away, if we were within four, uh, there would be a 95% chance of a lethal gamma ray burst during that 500 million year window. So again, when we're looking for life in our own galaxy, a whole huge chunk of the centre is uh, not a very good candidate for harbouring complex life forms, apparently. Um, and then they also say that in five billion years, even where we are, there's about a 95% chance of a nasty gamma ray burst coming along. So if humanity is planning to be around for a long, long, long time until the sun dies and beyond, we might have to watch out for gamma ray bursts, except that you can't really watch out for them because they kind of just happen. So if we kind of want to find other places with life, it's more likely that we'll find them in the outer reaches of the Milky Way rather than in the middle of it. Yeah, yeah. And they're saying also that the comparatively recent universe, the last five billion years, which is pretty much when the Earth's been around, that's been the best time to evolve as a complex species. Hmm. So well done us. Yeah, well done us. Well done human species. <laughs> Although, Christina, you were telling me that we have a time limit of more like one and a half to two billion years before the sun gets nasty with us. Yeah, so in our NAM episode in 2013, um, I interviewed... Um, someone about their research modeling basically planets and how the sun affects them and and yet it was about a couple of billion years before just the temperature on the earth heats up to the point where we wouldn't be able to survive it unless we'd obviously come up with some kind of technology technological solution to that or get away to another star or get away to another star yeah the gamma ray burst you'd have to you'd have to be looking at all the stars within thousands of light years to know whether any of them were likely to to have a supernova and we still don't understand gamma ray bursts all that well so don't worry about them too much. <laughs> <laughs> it's a long way in the future, probably, hopefully. And on to happier things, I'm going to talk about LEGO. And specifically, a joint venture between the European Space Agency and LEGO to create a robotics course called ExoPrep, which is dedicated to adva- advancing STEM education, so science, technology, engineering, maths, by using a programmable scale model of ExoMars rover. So ExoMars is ESA's future mission to Mars, which is due to land in about January 2019, aiming to detect whether or not, I think it was evidence of life on Mars at any point, um, or at least the building blocks of life. They're using Lego and this ExoMars mission to, to try and kind of stimulate people's STEM subjects, basically, and, and bring them all up to curriculum targets. And this is going to be across the EU. I don't know whether or not it'll be a, 
in the UK because it is kind of related to the International Baccalaureate. Um, but it's definitely something to watch out for in the future. Sounds great. I'd definitely be interested in doing it now, let alone when I was at school. <laughs> I'd definitely have loved it then as well. I wish they would make the real rover out of Lego, and that would be amazing. If it broke, it could put itself back together. Yeah, you'd need a little building machine that you could drop as well. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> or the bricks would have to know which other bricks to stick to somehow. That, yeah, that sounds quite difficult. <laughs> just an idea, Lego. Just an idea. <laughs> and now for someone who's going to tell us how everything is awesome in the night sky, here's Ian Morrison. The night sky for December 2014. Before I begin, could I point some of you at least to the image of the month on the night sky page on the Jodrell Bank website? Just Google night sky Jodrell Bank. It's actually a picture I took just a few days ago of star trails over a lake in Cheshire called Reedsmere. It's only there because I wanted to highlight two pieces of free software. First of all, there's a wonderful piece of software called Star Stacks, which enables you to stack, in my case, 100 30-second exposures to build up a star trails image. And it's so easy to use. But more important for you, I then did a little bit of work in Adobe Photoshop. Now, that's basically quite expensive. But at least at the present time, it is possible to get Adobe Photoshop CS2, which does almost everything you might want to do, for free, legally, from Adobe. And in the little text there, I tell you which website to go, which tells you exactly how to do that. So that's a great thing because Adobe Photoshop can do things that currently no other piece of software can easily do. So now let's begin. What about the sky? Well, of course, we've got a long time to view it. And as a result, what we see changes throughout the evening. But let's go to the middle of the month and sort of the middle of the evening. The great square of Pegasus is setting towards the western horizon. Up to his left is Andromeda. And, of course, in Andromeda we have M31, the Andromeda Nebula. And in the text on the night sky page is a chart and instructions as to how to find that by what is called star hopping. Above Pegasus and Andromeda, we have Cassiopeia, W-shaped, almost overhead around 10, 11 o'clock at night. Dropping down slightly towards the southeast is Perseus, and between the two, the lovely double cluster in Perseus, little fuzzy blob seen in binoculars, but beautiful in a telescope. Coming down there, we have Auriga, with the bright star Capella, one of the brightest stars in the sky in the early evening this month. And then below that, rising in the southeast, is Orion the Hunter. The three stars of its belt point leftwards down towards Sirius, the brightest star in the northern skies. That'll be rising a little bit later in the evening. Up to its right, and well risen, soon after dark, is the constellation of Taurus the Bull, with two wonderful clusters, the Hyades and the Pleiades. They're both open clusters. The Pleiades looks nice in binoculars, even better in a small telescope. The Hyades is more open, and there's a red star called Aldebaran, looking as though it's part of it. In fact, it isn't. It's about halfway between ourselves and the Hyades cluster. Then up to the left of Orion, we have Gemini with its two bright stars, the heavenly twins, Castor above and Pollux below. Finally, rising later on, we have Cancer with its rather nice little open cluster, M44, the beehive cluster. And finally, perhaps after midnight or so, Leo the lion. And between Cancer and Leo is the brightest object you'll see in the sky during December at night, apart from the moon, of course, which is Jupiter. And certainly at five o'clock this morning, it was looking absolutely brilliantly high, about 55 degrees elevation in the south. Well, what about the planets? 
Well, I've just mentioned Jupiter. Shining at about magnitude minus 2.2, it rises at about 10 o'clock at the beginning of the month, and it's around 10 degrees up to the right of the star Regulus in Leo. On the 9th, it actually begins its retrograde motion westwards across the sky, and that's due, in fact, to the Earth passing faster around on, you might say, the inside track. It's closest to Regulus on the 9th, lying about 7 degrees to its upper right. Because by the end of the month, it rises about an hour earlier, 8 o'clock or so, and there's a slight increase in magnitude to minus 2.4. It's due south, highest in the sky, elevation of 53 degrees, at about 0500 in the early hours of the morning. As the Earth is moving towards Jupiter, the size of its disk increases slightly from 40 to 43 arc seconds. So one should easily be able to see the equatorial bands in the atmosphere and the four Galilean moons as they weave their way around it. Saturn, not quite so good, I'm afraid. Having passed behind the sun on the 18th of November, it is now a morning object, rising an hour before sunrise as the month begins and about three hours before its end. It'll be shining at magnitude plus 0.5 and be high enough in the southeast before dawn to make out the beautiful ring system which has now opened out to 24 degrees. Mercury. Well, Mercury passes in front of the Sun on December the 8th, so will not be visible until the very end of the month, when it might just be glimpsed low in the southwest after sunset. It'll be seen, probably needing binoculars, down to the lower right of Venus on New Year's Eve, when its magnitude will be about minus 0.8, and will be only 3.5 degrees away from Venus, so could in principle be seen, if clear, in the field of a pair of low-power binoculars. Mars has been around for a very long time. It's moving eastwards road to the stars and crosses from Sagittarius into Capricornus on the 4th of the month. On the evening of the 3rd, it will lie less than a third of a degree from the globular cluster M75. That'll be a great imaging opportunity. It dims slightly from magnitude plus 1 to plus 1.1 during the month as the angular size of its disk falls from 5.1 down to 4.8 arc seconds. Given its low elevation, low in the southwest, no details will be seen, sadly, on its salmon pink surface. Due to its eastward motion, it actually sets about three hours after the sun the whole of the month. Finally, Venus. Having passed behind the sun in October, it's now an evening object setting some 45 minutes after sun as month begins. That increases to 75 minutes as we come towards New Year. So, Towards New Year, shining at magnitude minus 3.9, it should be easy to spot low above the southwestern horizon. Its angular size is about 10 arc seconds and will appear as a small dot, blurred by atmospheric turbulence. I suspect that due to its low elevation, its light will be split into a short vertical spectrum by refraction in the atmosphere. But what about some highlights? Well, I've mentioned Jupiter. This is the first of several great months to observe Jupiter. And one thing that I've added to the Night Sky page is a list of when the Great Red Spot is actually facing the Earth. So it gives you times during the evening when it will be good to actually observe to see it, and of course also in the early morning at the present time. I've mentioned that Mars will be close to the globular cluster M75 on December the 3rd and 4th. We have two meteor showers this month. On December the 14th and 15th, after midnight, we have the Geminids, which implies that the radiant of the meteors is in the constellation Gemini. Not a great year, a third quarter moon will hinder our view. So that means you'll only really see the brighter trails by looking high up away from the glare of the moon. 
Obviously, an observing location well away from towns or cities will pay dividends. The relatively slow meteors arise from debris released from the asteroid 3200 Phaethon. This is unusual, as most meteor showers come from comets. If it's clear, it'll be cold, so wrap up well, wear a woolly hat, and have some hot drinks with you. On the night of the 22nd, 23rd of December, we also have another meteor shower called the Ursids. The radiant lies close to the star Kokab in Ursa Minor, hence their name. So you have to look northwards at high elevation. The great thing this year is this coincides with new moon, so moonlight will not hinder our view. The number of meteors we see won't be very high, perhaps 10 to 12 or so per hour, but occasionally there's a far higher rate, so if clear, it's well worth having a look. Finally, I do try and give something to observe on the moon every month. And this month, it's a very nice feature. It's called the Alpine Valley. The dates best to see it are the 13th and the 29th, when the Terminator lies quite close. It's basically a gap passing through the Apennine mountain chain. It's a cleft, about seven miles wide and 79 miles long. As shown on the image, a thin rill runs along its length, which is quite a challenge to observe. Over the next two nights following, the dark crater Plato and the young crater Copernicus will come into view. It's a very interesting region of the moon. Thanks for that, Ian. And now here's Claire Bretherton with the Southern Night Sky. Kia and welcome to the December Jodcast from Carter Observatory in Wellington, New Zealand. As we move into our summer months and head towards the Southern Hemisphere summer solstice on the 22nd of December, our eastern evening sky is dominated by the constellations of Taurus, Orion and his two dogs Canis Major and Canis Minor. In Greek mythology, Orion is a hunter and the archenemy of Scorpius, our winter constellation. The two continually chase each other around the sky. Just as one rises in the east, the other sets below the western horizon. As it lies along the celestial equator, Orion can be seen throughout the world. In New Zealand we see him upside down, but we can still easily spot the sword in his hand and the shield on his arm. Orion is easy to find by the three bright stars that form his belt. Here in Aotearoa we call these Totoru, meaning line of three. Above Orion's belt is a line of faint stars which form Orion's sword in the northern hemisphere. For those of us here in the southern hemisphere, we see the belt and sword instead as a pot or saucepan. Orion contains a number of interesting objects to observe with both the naked eye and binoculars or telescopes. If you look carefully, you may see the middle star of Orion's sword has a fuzzy appearance. This is the Great Nebula in Orion, or M42. The Orion Nebula is a stellar nursery, a huge cloud of gas and dust in which new stars are being born. At around 1,344 light years away, M42 is the closest massive star formation region to the Earth, with around 700 stars in various stages of the star formation process. In the heart of the Orion Nebula is a small group of bright stars known as the Trapezium Cluster. The ultraviolet radiation from these stars is lighting up the surrounding gas. Whilst easily spotted with the naked eye, through binoculars or a small telescope, the Orion Nebula is a wonderful sight. Take your time and you should be able to clearly see some of the nebulosity of M42 and the bright star cluster that lights it up. Another nebula in Orion that is well worth a look is a reflection nebula M78, easily found in a small telescope. With a larger telescope, the famous Horsehead Nebula, or IC434, is a lovely sight, 
just to the south of the star Alnitak in Orion's belt. At the top left of the constellation is the bright blue-white supergiant Rigel. Whilst Rigel has been given the designation Beta Orionis, it is in fact normally the brightest star in the constellation and the seventh brightest in the night sky. In contrast to the blue of Rigel, at the bottom right of Orion is the red supergiant Betelgeuse, Alpha Orionis, the second brightest star in the constellation. Betelgeuse is a star that's coming towards the end of its life. As it runs out of fuel to burn, it has bloated out and cooled down, giving it its wonderful red colour. Estimates of the mass of Betelgeuse range from around 8 to 20 times that of the Sun, and if it were placed at the centre of the solar system, its surface would reach out almost as far as the orbit of Jupiter. One day soon, Betelgeuse is going to end its life in a huge explosion called a supernova. Of course, soon to astronomers could be a million years. But if it does go bang within our lifetimes, it is sure to be a spectacular sight, perhaps becoming so bright you could see it in the daytime. At a distance of over 600 light years, it is possible that this explosion has already happened, and we are just waiting for the light to reach us. Following Orion's belt to the right, you come to Sirius or Takarua, the brightest star in our nighttime sky and in the constellation of Canis Major, Orion's large hunting dog. Canis Minor, the small dog, is a little below, close to the eastern horizon. Its brightest star, Procyon, is actually a binary star system, consisting of a white main-sequence star and a faint white dwarf companion. At just 11.46 light-years away, it is one of the nearest neighbours to our Sun. Following Orion's belt to the left, we come to an upturned V-shape of stars marking the head of Taurus the Bull. At the bottom of this V is the bright orange star Aldebaran, at around 65 light-years away, representing the eye of the bull. The other stars in the V are part of the more distant Hyades cluster. At 153 light-years away, the Hyades is the closest and one of the best-studied open clusters to Earth. It is estimated to be around 625 million years old. Over time, the cluster will continue to spread out and disperse into space, with some of the largest and brightest members already coming towards the end of their lives. Continuing further around the sky, you come to another famous open cluster, the Pleiades, or M45, at a distance of 444 light-years away. This group of stars is even younger than the Hyades, and is dominated by a number of hot, massive blue stars, only around 100 million years old. The Pleiades has many different names in many different cultures, but here in New Zealand it's known as Matariki, meaning little eyes or eyes of God. The rising of this group of stars for the first time before the sun, around June each year, marks the coming of the Maori New Year. The summer Milky Way stretches through these constellations and along our southern horizon. Although not as bright as our winter Milky Way, we still see the mottled glow of bright and dark regions when observed from a dark location. Crux, the Southern Cross, also lies along the band of the Milky Way and is low in the southeastern sky this month. Beside it is a dark patch called the Colsac Nebula, a huge cloud of interstellar gas and dust about 600 light-years away. Known as a dark nebula, the gas and dust in this cloud are blocking the light from more distant stars, obscuring them from our view. To Maori, the Colsac Nebula is known as Tepataki, or the Flounder. Venus joins Mars in our western sky this month, setting around an hour after sunset, and towards the end of December, Mercury also makes an appearance low on the horizon at dusk, below and to the left of Venus. Bright golden Jupiter is rising in the northeast shortly after 1am at the beginning of the month, but by the end of December it will start moving into our evening skies, rising before midnight, while Saturn becomes a morning object, rising around two and a half hours before the sun by the end of the month. 
We also have two annual meteor showers happening this month. The Theonicids reached their peak on the 6th of December and are thought to be associated with the comet D1819W1 Blanpain. With the radiant in the constellation of Phoenix not far from Achena, this shower is well placed for southern hemisphere observers throughout the hours of darkness. However, the shower is often a variable one, and with the peak coinciding closely with a full moon on the morning of the 7th, observing conditions are less than favourable this time around. The other meteor shower peaking on the 14th of the month is the Geminids. This is one of the best meteor showers of the year, but we are not well placed for viewing in New Zealand with the radiant in the constellation of Gemini and well north of the equator. The constellation is at its highest around 3am, but still appears low in our northern sky. Due to this low height, we only see about 50% of the meteors visible to those in the northern hemisphere. Wishing you clear skies from the team here at Carter Observatory. Thanks for that, Claire. Now, on to the feedback. Um, I've got a, a postcard that we missed a few months ago. So, last episode, Neil Hickling sent us a postcard from Sheffield to say he'd also sent us a postcard from Turkey that we seem to have lost. And we found it stuck on a wall. Um, we did it somehow we hadn't mentioned it. It was from August. And at that time, Neil said, Enjoying hot days and clear nights, great for meteor watching. And missing the August extra, but looking forward to September's broadcast. And he sent a nice postcard from Turkey there with a map of major... Um, architectural landmarks so thank you very much and we've had an email from Jorgen Nielsen who says hi what a great show I'm looking forward every time it appears on my newsfeed thanks for all the ask an astronomer questions that we have had this month and from Facebook Andrew Horner says great piece on Voyager 1 I had to play it through twice to unpack everything that was in it thanks for that Andrew on Twitter Jen Gupta our former leader said it's five years since we recorded Jogcast live in front of an audience which is true, because I was there and I remember it. Um, it was really good. It was also quite a hard work, which is why we haven't repeated it. However, <laughs> for the 10th anniversary of the Jogcast, which is in 13 months' time, safe in the knowledge that I might well not be here, I'd like to say we should do that again. <laughs> and as usual, thanks to all of the new likes on Facebook and all of the retweets and follow Fridays on Twitter. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. Or on Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. Or Flickr at flickr.com slash group slash jodcast. And don't forget, you can always send us posts. The address is on the website. So now all that's left to say is thanks to Professor Eliza Rasconi for the interview. The editors were Ben Shaw, George Bendo, Claire Bretherton, Monique Henson, Mark Perver and Prabhu Thiagaraj. The producer was Christina Smith. Until next time, jod on! Jod on.